Now I'm going to hand over to Ollie. That's, that's just a human eye, isn't it? Is it? I've got a, a grand one. Um, yeah, thanks everyone um, for, for coming along and thanks to Anne-Marie for, for inviting me to take uh, to contribute to this evidence-based healthcare programme. So I should probably explain that the title is more uh, Anne-Marie's doing the, than, than my own. So she, she told me to pick a controversial title in order to um, get more people to come to the lecture. And as you can tell, it was incredibly effective. What, what would have happened if I had a less controversial title? You're not supposed to give away my secrets, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, um, can I say I was due to be here with a larger group of people, but they oh. got flooded out because uh, they're coming from Lavington. Okay, grand. We just Sorry. when you turn around, imagine that there was those people like, <laughs> that, that aren't here now. Um, so, Although I have got this controversial title and sort of it, it looks like I might be suggesting that uh, evidence is perhaps limited, and, and I suppose it is, um, I'm also funded, as Amory mentioned, by the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute, which is what this institute stands for, although I spend most of my time telling people this institute doesn't mean where I'm currently stood. Um, so. And how, uh, this institute proudly claimed that we do, uh, so we do not do healthcare improvement, we research healthcare improvement. So what that means is we generate evidence about evidence generation. So despite the title, don't worry, you're in sort of safe evidence valuing hands. Um, this isn't going to be a talk about how we can do without evidence in healthcare. Uh, that would be nonsense, and although I am not beyond talking nonsense, I tend to say the subject, uh, that for subjects that aren't the difference between life and death, uh, complete recovery or chronic pain, or a fit-for-purpose National Health Service, or you know whatever it is we've got at the moment. Um, rather, for those of us who work or have an interest in public health, uh, we need to take a more critical approach to the way we generate, select, apply, and communicate evidence about health and healthcare. So later on in the talk, I'll use the example of obesity to illustrate my point. Uh, you should all have a copy of, uh, of the comic uh, created by the award-winning illustrator Jade Sarson, and I say that to emphasize Jade's greatness rather than my own doing. So the weight of expectation tells the story of how stigma associated with body weight and size gets under the skin and is felt in the flesh. Despite the well-established evidence based on the damaging health effects of weight-based stigma um, and how it can and does prevent some people from accessing healthcare and causes other people to have very negative experiences within healthcare, um, largely this evidence does not inform how public health approaches the issue of obesity. However, this evidence-based comic is already being used in health education programmes and health services around the world as part of an evidence-based approach to the issue of obesity. Um, this is in part an outcome of me realising fairly early on in my research career that when it comes to creating evidence-based uh, policy and practice, evidence is necessary but insufficient. Uh, so I'll tell you a bit about how I came to this realisation. Um, I'm a sociologist who researches the relationship between obesity, inequality and health. My research spans the macro-micro scale and what I mean by that is it analyzes how government policies and social circumstances impact individual health and well-being. In particular, I explore how and why inequalities in health exist and what are the most effective and equitable interventions would be if we were going to reduce them. So my research is interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary in nature, meaning that it's informed by research from many different disciplines and I collaborate with others working across uh, science and the arts. I feel this is absolutely essential because with an issue uh, like uh, health and more specifically obesity, these are far, so far um, really complicated issues um, and therefore no one discipline will have, uh, will be able to come up with all the answers or to know or create evidence that will be able to answer all of the, all of the problems. So in part, I suspect the reason why I was invited today to give this talk is because as well as being a researcher, uh, as Anne-Marie mentioned, I uh, co-founded the Art Collective AWL with my brother. Uh, so we work collaboratively with artists and designers to make evidence accessible and engaging for as wide an audience as possible. The Weight of Expectation comic is an example of our work, and I will use other AWL uh, artworks throughout my time with you today to illustrate some of my arguments. So the reason why AWL exists 
um, is because the use of evidence is at its core political and anyone who wants to create evidence-based policy and practice must be fully aware of this when they approach the endeavour. So I'm sure uh, you are aware uh, evidence about what is needed to improve health and healthcare is often inconvenient uh, for exactly the people who need to be influenced if things are going to be improved. Um, health inequalities represent a perfect example of the limits of evidence. So vast inequalities in health uh, do not exist uh, due to an absence um, or lack of evidence due to, uh, about the origin, reproduction or what is needed to reduce health inequalities. Rather, they persist because the exchange rate of evidence outside of academia is it's significantly lower than it is within it. Uh, while researchers armed with evidence have, uh, have significant expertise, this does not guarantee them influence, as is uh, well illustrated by this Malcolm Tucker quote, which is unusually swear-free. Um, and this isn't because I'm prudish. I was fucking disappointed when I realised it didn't have any swearing. Um, so this reality really hit home when I was doing my <coughs> PhD. Around the time I started my doctoral research, Professor Danny Dorlin, who I believe is, uh, well, I know for sure that he is at uh, the University of Oxford, declared the scandal of our times as being the biggest gap in life expectancy recorded in Britain since the recession of the 1880s. And he was referring to the 14.4 years in difference between life expectancy between the uh, relatively deprived city of Glasgow and the affluent borough of Kensington and Chelsea. Um, as you're all working in healthcare, it seems worth noting that back in the 1880s, the work of Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch had only just established germ theory. Um, so what this means was that previously germs were thought to be a product of illness and not the cause of it. So it's literally the opposite of what is true. And that's how primitive uh, medicine and public health was back at that period of time. So, of course, average life expectancy now far exceeds those of, uh, Victor of Victorian Britain, but for all the scientific, medical and social advances we've made since then, similarly vast inequalities in health persist. Why is this the case? Because for all the evidence we have on the social determinants of health and the detrimental impact that social inequality has on health um, at, at both an individual and population level, Promoting health by addressing social inequality is still largely framed as utopian idealism rather than what it actually is, which is pragmatic, evidence-based public health. Uh, the evidence uh, has long shown that we live in one of the most unequal societies in the world and that social inequality significantly influences health. Now, I am not going to dispel uh, accusations of utopian idealism by directly quoting Engels so early on in the talk, but... Uh, for the cynics there, please humour me. So I do so because the quote comes from a social analysis of the conditions of Victorian Britain that created an inequality in life expectancy as extreme as the one Daddy Dorling noted has been reproduced in our times now. In addition to that, um, and tying into the theme of evidence, in the quote, Engels is inviting us to reflect upon his analysis and, this, and the his analysis of this evidence and how it will stand up in the future. And given that 150 years later, that is a future that we're now part of, we're, we're operating from a particularly useful vantage point to reflect on this. So at this point, it's worth pointing out that Danny Dorling proclaims the gap in life expectancy as the scandal of our times before the Grenfell fire, um, which incidentally, or not incidentally, took place in the uh, borough of Kensington of Chelsea, sort of the, one of the extremes of that 144 years. Uh, here here we, uh, is where we could argue that very little has changed. In fact, it was this year that Chris Grover from Lancaster University <coughs> drew on Engels' description of the vast inequalities in health that have derived from the vast inequalities in working and living conditions as what he referred to as social murder, to argue that contemporary austerity policies um, enact an equivalent act of violence on uh, people in the country perhaps most powerfully illustrated by what happened at Grenfell. However, this quote also highlights how public health uh, priorities have significantly sh shifted since the time of Engels. For instance, here he refers to the inevitability of perpetual epidemics of communicable diseases and the deterioration of, phys uh, of physique, a deterioration driven by a lack of uh, food and associated emaciation. This couldn't be further from the situation we find ourselves in now, where non-communicable diseases are the biggest killer and public health organisations around the world 
waging war against the so-called obesity epidemic. Although it should be noted at this point that there are millions of people in this country who are currently reliant on food banks. Contemporary analysis of the social determinants of health, uh, released around the time I was doing my PhD, um, have helped to highlight how and why very different social circumstances reproduce health inequalities of equivalent scale to those observed in Victorian Britain. So it's worth mentioning here, so Michael Marmot, uh, who was centrally involved in the Whitehall studies, demonstrated something that's really quite profound, which was that it wasn't just... Um, inequality within economic inequality that was the, the big factor here it was actually much more significant in that in that it was the gradation that people uh, that people work in so by looking at the different wages that people get working within Whitehall he was able to plot that essentially differences in uh, the wage that someone get even small differences have this effect this accumulative effect where, where health will follow this linear line between how much you earn and how healthy you are and why this is so significant is because the amount of money difference between, say, this bar and this bar is not enough to really have a massive impact on health, you would think. Like, people can't buy a, a much bigger house as a consequence of having that money or, or have a very different lifestyle. Those people will, to all intents and purposes, be almost identical in the lifestyles that they are afforded. But the significance is that they have this, this gradation. They are aware of where they are in this inequality. Um, and this is what... Um, Michael Marmot referred to as the status syndrome. And this analysis is kind of picked up with uh, a book that came out the year before I started my PhD, which was uh, Wilkinson and Pickett's Spirit Level, where they were arguing that inequality within uh, a country is not as, it is far more important than inequality to, between countries. So previously we thought that inequality is essentially, uh, sort of people's access to resources is the most important thing, and what their analysis was showing is that countries that are actually very similar in terms of how unequal they are, like the, even though they're very different in terms of the level of affluence, will have similar levels of health outcomes. So this is a significant shift, and, and essentially what they're describing is Michael Marmot's uh, status syndrome, where they describe it as the, a psychosocial experience of inequality, just the sense of being in a society where you have the have and have-nots, and the haves and have-yots. That's the, that sense of where you are in, the, in keeping up with the Joneses, knowing that while some people are struggling to heat their house, other people are heating their garden pools. Knowing that you are sort of essentially worthless in the society in comparison to other people who are not considered uh, worthy to have those things has an impact on your health. That's the, that's the theory that they're putting forward. So to bring this all back to healthcare and the relevance of evidence on the social determinants of health to those who are interested in evidence-based healthcare, I want to recount an old parable as retold by medical sociologist Irving Zola, who has, who has explained the dilemmas of modern medical practice from the perspective of a physician. So Zola writes, Sometimes it feels like this. There I am standing on, on the shore of a swiftly flowing river, and I hear this cry of a drowning man. So I jump into the river, put my arms around him, pull him to the shore, and apply artificial respiration. Just when he begins to breathe, there is another cry for help, so I jump into the river, reach him, pull him to shore, apply artificial respiration, and then just uh, as he begins to breathe, another cry for help. So back in the river I go, reaching, pulling, applying, breathing, and then another yell. Again and again, without end, goes the sequence. You know, I'm so busy jumping in, pulling people to the shore, applying artificial respiration, that I have no time to see who the hell is upstream pushing them all in. So the prevention parable is often uh, recited in discussions about public health in order to outline the relative merits of upstream, so what we might think of as political, economic and social intervention, and downstream, that is treatment, care, individual behaviour change, uh, change, approaches to health promotion. The publication of the Ottawa Chart in the <coughs> 1980s is widely considered to have marked a new era in public health by shifting emphasis from downstream solutions to upstream intervention. So while traditional public health focused on treatment and cure, the shift in focus to non-communicable diseases led to greater attention being paid to the social and environmental factors in what is known as the era of new public health. However, over time, and with a significant shift in socio-political culture that occurred in Britain and elsewhere around the 1970s and 80s, the focus of new public health significantly narrowed. Instead of focusing on how social and environmental factors can be changed in order to promote health, 
the new public health agenda came to prioritise individual behaviour change. To continue the river metaphor, the new public health agenda has lost sight of the need to build bridges to healthier lives and instead promotes individual responsibility for swimming competency. So the career of Michael Marmot is an interesting case in point. So I'm sure many of you will be familiar with Michael Marmot and his work. <coughs> But perhaps less familiar with the, with the fact that he was previously a surgeon and he uh, recounts this story of the fact that he's at the operating table and he's, uh, and he's performing surgery on people and he came to this realisation one day that people are going to keep coming in and he's going to have this endless task of performing these operations on people because the things that are making these people need surgery are remaining the same. So he is basically doing the, ha the, he's the handmaiden of an unequal society that's outside that's driving inequality. And here I think this is a really useful quote, the idea that health inequalities and the social determinants of health are not a footnote to the determinants of health, they are the main issue. And this is significant of course because the Marmot Report was released in two, uh, 2010 and it built on the Black Report published in the 1980s, the Whitehead Report that was uh, published in 1988, the HM Report in, uh, that was published in 1998. So since around the time of the Ottawa Charter moved us into the era of new public health, each generation has had a report on the social determinants of health inequalities that presented evidence which has largely been ignored, and some with more obvious, um, more obvious cases for being ignored than others. For instance, the Black Report was commissioned by a Labour government in, in 1977, but of course these things take time, and by the time it was finished, Mar Margaret Thatcher's uh, government had been elected into power. And this, the publication of this report never came around. So famously, the report um, it wasn't published. It was merely photocopied 260 times and distributed on a bank holiday Monday. So there was a real suppression of this uh, report, which was basically demonstrating uh, how, how social inequality impacts health inequalities. So when I say ignored, in fact, evidence on the social de determinants of health and the need to act on them is often articulated in policy, not necessarily ignored, but fails to be put into practice. And this is due to a policy trend as lifestyle, uh, known as lifestyle drift, and it's something that I've done a significant amount of, of work on. So the notion of lifestyle drift is that while there is this recognition now that basically um, politicians and, and organization, health organisations can't get around, which is this is a very obvious link between social inequality and health inequalities. This is often articulated in policies, but then over time when those policies are as, as made into interventions and delivered at a local level, basically there's a drift towards downstream. So if we think about that current of upstream, downstream, they, they, they drift downstream and essentially become lifestyle interventions, so things that are previously talked about the need to address these more upstream uh, interventions essentially drift downstream to individual responsibility for lifestyle. And the example of ob obesity provides a useful case in point. So despite the infectious nature of obesity, we now talk about an obesity epidemic placing a huge financial burden on uh, national and global economies. Uh, the World Obesity Federation estimates that by 2025, obesity-related illness will cost $1.2 trillion uh, a year, which is a number that's so big that I can't really fathom what that, that means. Um, and treating conditions associated with being uh, overweight estimated is estimated to cost the NHS $6 billion a year, with forecasts predicting that this will double by 2030. Now, I've been talking about this issue for a long time and I realise that unless I make a few qualifications at this point, there will be people in the room who will just switch off, right? So let me make some qualifications. <laughs> so I do not deny that in recent decades there has been a significant increase in the number of people who are classified as overweight or obese. Neither do I deny that there is a strong association between obesity and non-communicable diseases. And in fact, I'm happy to go even further than that. So when you get into these debates, and I've been in this, involved in these debates for a long time now, often the, the counter-arguments to these things is that, um, that there is an association, it's not, it, there's an association, not necessarily a cor um, it's co cause, correlation rather than causation. So that idea that, you know, correlation being that 
people think that uh, people that wear glasses are smart, and so this is something that I'm benefiting from right now, and it's the, the reason perhaps why I'm standing in front of for all of you. But this is a correlation, not a causation. If I take these glasses off, I don't suddenly become dumb. I was previously dumb. Like that consistency is already there, right? So this is the difference between correlation and causation. And th there is this idea, and people have argued it for a long time, that the, there is only a correlation between what is defined as obesity <coughs> and ill health. And I think increasingly these arguments are not really uh, based, uh, are, are sort of losing legitimacy. In some ways they have absolute legitimacy, and in other ways uh, not so. So the, the parts of the debate that take on uh, evidence that is based on BMI, absolutely legitimate. I think that BMI has been shown to be an incredibly crude indicator of health. There are so many what are known as obesity paradoxes that it's kind of that thing of like, when you have to come up with so many paradoxes or exceptions to the rule, how can the rule still apply? So if we go through some of the paradoxes, the, the notion of a classic uh, paradox, so this idea that having uh, higher body weights generally is uh, protective in certain populations. So like if you go in for, uh, the classic uh, study was people who went in for heart surgery, the prediction was made that the people who are of higher weights would have a lower rate of recovery, and people of lower weights would have a better rate of recovery, and the study showed the exact opposite. Um, and more generally, reviews that have been done now show that uh, overweight um, and uh, having a, a higher weight is generally protective in older populations. So this is what's sort of known as the, the classic obesity paradox. Then we have what might be called uh, the mistaken mass paradox, which is what most of the general public will know about. So it's the one where people go, do you know Rain Rooney's like a beast? That sort of thing where, because BMI do doesn't differentiate between uh, what mass is, it just measures mass. So it will mean that people who are uh, very muscular will be classified as obese, where, because it's only trying to predict, uh, it's a predictor of fat mass but it can't differentiate between muscle and fat mass. So you end up in a situation where pretty much every single rugby player or rower, people who are incredibly physically active will be classified as obese and therefore the, the things that are associated uh, with their risk of health, that idea is conveyed onto them, but most people would think that would be ridiculous because it's not able to differentiate between fat and muscle. And then you have, and it's sort of related, I suppose, uh, the paradox which colloquially is known as the fat but fit paradox, um, but in more medical terms, the metabolically healthy but obese phenotype, not so catchy. Um, and this is the sense that, uh, that, that there's been studies done where you have, you have people who are classified as overweight and obese, and so that's the thing that holds all of these people together. And yet you see differences in health across this otherwise similar population, so they all have that, that characteristic. And when studies have looked into this, essentially what's been demonstrated is that people who, have, who are more physically active and have higher levels of physical fitness generally have, are metabolically healthy, even though they're at a higher weight. And those who are uh, less physically active will generally have the associations related to what we deem to be the negative effects of, uh, of obesity, the high risk of cancer and uh, metabolic disease and su such forth. So the, the, the notion there is that actually a far better predictor of health would be how physically active someone is rather than their BMI. And often you see that this is reported that healthy obesity is being debunked uh, by new studies and almost always those studies do not measure how physically active someone or how physically uh, fit somebody is. So they claim to debunk the fat but fit paradox and yet they're not measuring activity or fitness. So again with evidence you need to look at what the evidence is demonstrating. So there are these paradoxes. Um, however, increasingly evidence that measures obesity in different ways, so not using the BMI, so looking at things like adipose tissue um, or uh, hip-to-waist hip ratio, um, demonstrates that there is an increased risk in various diseases of health conditions. And I think that there is this sense within the debate that often people feel that they have to go to the extreme of saying that there are no health consequences with uh, uh, people being at a higher weight or obese. And therefore, I think when you look at that, there's always going to be people that deny that and the evidence would demonstrate, or increasingly the evidence demonstrates that it's not really the case. And I think that it sort of undermines the argument anyway. You don't need to go that far to the extreme and that most of the arguments are based on this again, this idea of correlation, not causation. But this helps us to look at sort of one of the fundamental limitations of evidence as well. 
So it's a perfect uh, example of the limitations of uh, sort of achieving the gold standard of evidence, and that is that they're not running RCTs on these things. So because it would be considered sort of unethical to have people sort of in a lab to feed some people up, not feed other people up, and then sort of test them in those things. You can't have that sort of gold standard. And when we talk about evidence, particularly in the medical field, that's what we're thinking of as the gold standard of evidence. And it's, it's, what's really interesting in this is that people within that debate, I imagine, would, it, would be quite happy to acknowledge that there is a, uh, that there is a, core, like a causal relationship between smoking and lung cancer. But the same things applies to that research. So the, the sort of seminal study by Dole and Bradford in 1950 on smoking and lung cancer was basically a case control study. Obviously, it couldn't be an RCT. They weren't going to get some people to smoke, some people not to smoke, and then sort of, sort of the one control group. So in essence, what it was doing was comparing people who, who have broadly similar, um, who are broadly similar except for not having lung cancer or not, and not smoking or not, right? So again, so the, the evidence that that's based on, and so most people would say that, that, that people wouldn't dispute that, is the same uh, logic. It's not an RCT, but it's done in the same way that people might say, for instance, Cancer Research UK are saying that they're now moving into an era where they're com confident to say that there is a causal relationship. Um, with health. And I think in recognising these, uh, the, these realities, so I argue that our approach to obesity needs to change. So it's not, you don't need to deny the fact that there may be a relationship with, uh, between health that may be causal. Um, you can say, well, perhaps there might be in many cases because it is measured by BMI, there won't be, that there are people who could be perfectly healthy but at a higher body weight. But in other cases, that won't necessarily be the case. And there are many reasons to be critical of the way obesity is currently framed and understood, the interventions designed to lower its incidence, and the way people of higher weights are more generally treated by medical professionals. And it's important at this point to make the distinction between prevention and treatment. Um, so one doesn't fit necessarily really easily into ever, and I think if you conflate these two things, which is often what happens in public health, you basically erase um, so a certain per, like type of existence. So if people are already at a higher weight, it's going to be very difficult for those people to lose weight for reasons that I'll explain later on. So the, the, the ways to prevent uh, obesity aren't going to be applied to people who are already higher weight in the same way that they might be applied to, to future generations who are yet to be born or are, or are currently children. Uh, so in short, um, while some argue that obesity represents one of the biggest threats to public health that we now face, what I'm arguing is that one of the biggest threats to public health that we currently face is actually the way that public health deals with the issue of obesity. So lifestyle modification is said to be both the cause and cure of obesity. The idea being that modern society has changed everyday life in a way that promotes weight gain. Despite recognition that obesity is a complex issue influenced by a variety of biological, psychological, environmental and social factors, and significantly that when measured via BMI it is only a very crude indicator of health, prevention strategies currently approach obesity as the outcome of personal choice and willpower. And this is well illustrated in the Public uh, Health England campaign, Change for Life, which you can see in here. So in the UK, there will not be a single person who has been able to avoid this slogan um, and uh, of this social marketing campaign, sort of eat well, move more, live longer. Now, there is truth to this slogan. In fact, it is evidence-based, and you could say it's even common sense, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. And this makes the job of a sociologist very difficult, because if you argue against what's considered common sense... Uh, you, you just seem cynical and unhelpful, and that is the common perception of sociologists, that we're problem-rich and solution-poor, right? We can tell you why what you're doing is wrong, but we can't necessarily tell you how to do it better. Um, and I find the best way to combat uh, this is to take on common sense with common sense. And so what you're seeing on this slide here is on your left, you're seeing a genuine poster from... The Change for Life campaign, and on your right, you're seeing a uh, poster that we made uh, through AWL. Now, it's almost embarrassing how simple this is in terms of so like sociological analysis. Like this is uh, sociology 101 or GCSE level sociology, um, and so because it helps us to unpack what's happening here. So, what you're seeing in the genuine uh, advert or, or, or poster 
what that's doing is splitting all of society into two groups of people. Okay, so you have one group of people who are who obviously want children to live longer and therefore are good citizens and they live a, a healthy lifestyle and they help their children to live a healthy lifestyle. Good citizens, up, upstanding citizens. Then obviously you have the other group of people who want children to die. Um, and so obviously this, is, this, this makes a mockery of it, but this, this sense that anyone who's not choosing to live a healthy lifestyle is therefore in some sense morally inferior. What this does is it moralises something that's usually beyond individual control. And all that's happening in this other poster is it's demonstrating that contextual factors influence individual behaviour, sort of like sociology 101. And the Change for Life campaign places all of the emphasis on uh, personal choice and individual responsibility. In this cast, anyone categorised as overweight or obese as irresponsible person placing an avoidable burden on national health services. In essence, it uses stigma as a strategy to promote weight loss with the assumption that this will improve health outcomes. Now, if we lived in a society where healthy lifestyle, uh, a healthy lifestyle was freely accessible and a realistic option for all, then this might work. But we don't. And how do I know this? Because of all of the evidence demonstrating a link between inequality and obesity. For example, late last year, the Food Foundation indicated that over 14 million households in Britain are unable to afford to follow government recommendations for healthy eating. So to put this into context, even a conservative estimate of two people per household means that roughly half the population are unable to follow Public Health England's instructions for how to eat well despite being bombarded with this message. And this is where an appreciation of social context is key. So there are clear social gradients in the incidence of obesity. In evidence terms, social gradients for sociologists are both beauty and the beast. I mean, like, look at that there. Like, that's beautiful in the sense of if you try to make an argument that health is socially determined and that socioeconomic status does have a sort of a gradated impact on health. They're literally stairways to privilege, aren't they? Or stairways to deprivation, where, whichever way you look at that. And so there's this sort of real beauty in demonstrating your, your argument as a sociologist. Uh, but once you step back <coughs> from social gradients and, uh, as being purely illustrations of data, you see sort of obviously the beastly reality of that. So overall, what social gradients demonstrate is that throughout the society, people will be affected by a particular health issue. And that's important. You can see there it's not just people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum who uh, are living with obesity. But that lower down the socioeconomic spectrum, people are disproportionately disadvantaged by it. And the implications of this uh, epidemiological phenomenon is that a person's social circumstances, that is their access to resources, tend to have a significant and communicative impact on their health. What you see here is just that. And significantly, uh, what you can see in the other graph is that inequality in incidence is growing. So, social, so that's what you're seeing here, is that over time, this gap is getting bigger rather than smaller. And a sociological analysis of this would suggest that the current lifestyle-focused public health obesity prevention strategy is reproducing what's known as the inequality paradox. That is, because those with the most resources at hand to adapt to new situations will be the first to derive maximum benefits from an approach, health inequalities will widen. So if you just provide people with information, <coughs> the people who have the most means will be able to follow that, inf uh, that, that advice, whereas people who are more restrained won't be able to, or more of them won't be able to. So social disadvantage clearly inhibits people's capacity to live a healthy lifestyle. And you could argue as a sociologist that really we only have, or we only know one uh, successful intervention to change for, for behaviour change, and that is essentially to make people more wealthy, and it has the added benefit of you don't actually need to do anything. If you just make people more wealthy, they seem to make the choices that you want them to without actually having to do anything, right? So it would seem common sense. And I think here it's worth quoting Robert Crawford's seminal text on the ideology of po and politics of victim blaming, written back in 1977, to help us reflect on the selective nature of the use of evidence in, new public, in the new public health era. So he wrote back then, 
It's important to recognise and address the issues that a significant portion of socially caused illness is, at some level, associated with individual at-risk behaviour, which can be changed uh, to improve health. A deterministic view which <coughs> argues that individuals have no choice should be avoided. We must be uh, what must be questioned is both the effectiveness and the political uses, as well as the scientific narrowness of a focus on lifestyle on changing individual behaviour, without changing the social and economic environment. And I would suggest that that is essentially like uh, giving someone a cow to ride in a horse race and then expecting them just to win the race, right, just because they want that to happen. Um, so the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that advising someone to lose weight without changing their personal or social circumstances is highly likely to be ineffective. Evidence suggests that weight loss is generally only achievable in the short term, and around 80% of weight loss is regained within a five-year period. People tend to lose it and then gradually put it back on. This means that vast swathes of society across the world are stuck in this cycle of yo-yo dieting, essentially uh, weight on, weight off, weight on, weight off. This is otherwise known in medical terminology as weight cycling. And the evidence suggests that this on and off cycle is actually bad for health compared to, when compared to maintaining a, a stable weight, generally due to mental health. It is, this, it is the ineffectiveness of behaviour change within societies as they are, which is why Michael Marmot wants us to focus on the causes of causes of ill health. What he means by this is that while lifestyle factors like diet and inactivity may be considered causes of ill health, what are the causes of these causes? Looking at the social gradients, as a social scientist, the answer seems obvious. Social inequalities are key. But there is reluctance to recognise this in public health and health promotion. So Cancer Research UK offer a perfect example of this. They have consistently, over a decade, run campaigns that frame obesity as the outcome of individual lifestyle. Generally, as well, they will defend their campaigns by stating that they are evidence-based, which they do tend to be, but it's what evidence are you using? And again, it goes back to this, this, this notion that they are using evidence to demonstrate that there is perhaps a causal relationship between uh, obesity and cancer. But that doesn't necessarily mean that in the real world, when you want to change that, that much can be done about that at, at an individual level. So again, though, they are able to make the, the claim that it's evidence-based, but they're not necessarily able to back up this idea that just changing lifestyle will drastically change that. So doing my bit for public sociology, I was recently part of a campaign launched in response to the most uh, recently stigmatising campaign with actually someone else who's in the audience, uh, Helen West. This actually landed me on the national uh, news and provided me with possibly my finest moment as a sociologist. Um, watch this and see if you can spot the bit where the presenter doesn't want to uh, deal with the inconvenience of uh, a sociological analysis. Um, I, I mean, we agree, do we, all of us here, that the science is correct, that obesity can cause 13 types of cancer. It's more common now for obesity to cause bowel cancer, kidney cancer, ovarian cancer, liver cancer, more than smoking. So what's wrong with this campaign? Is it surely just a hard-hitting message where it's really needed? Okay, sure. So what we agree on is that obesity shouldn't be treated as a, an individual issue, that it's about people making bad choices, that it should be treated as a complex social issue, and policy intervention is absolutely key. We also agree that Cancer Research UK are operating in a very hostile policy environment, but again, any policy issue is very, very difficult because of things like Brexit and because of the... So, I thought it sounds like you're going into big theory here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's interesting, actually, the bit that, that, where it cuts off there is essentially what she says, it sounds like you're going into big theory here. Aren't you just saying that this is an issue of fat-shaming? That's often how this plays out in public discourse, right? That you are either accepting that there is this health issue or you have to defend on some sort of personal identity idea that it's wrong to shame people in this way and actually we didn't use the term fat shaming in our counter campaign at all we talk about discrimination of which fat shaming is perhaps part of that but there's much broader discrimination going on so despite it clearly being an inconvenient reality in all my time is uh, uh time researching these issues working with people who live in some of the most deprived areas of britain i've never met anyone who didn't know what the evidence tells us that eating fruit and vegetables and exercising is good for your health 
I have, however, met plenty of people who found it difficult to live a healthy lifestyle because of social circumstances that they lived in. Simply telling people to eat well and move more won't prevent obesity because it doesn't deal with the, some of the major root causes. It's a bit like this. You can use water to put out fire, but fires are not caused by a lack of water. And I know you all agree with this logic because when you left your home this morning, you didn't hose it down just to make sure it was there when you got home, right? Because you understood that while, yes, that would be effective, it would also damage your house and it would probably collapse, right? So there would be additional detrimental impacts of that strategy while it also being effective to some level. So if we're serious about promoting health, we need to approach obesity as a social issue rather than a personal failing. And until we do, uh, do this, not only are we missing the point, but we're making more problems for ourselves, particularly people working in healthcare. And this is what the Weight of Expectation comic is all about. So it's based on a year I spent with three weight loss groups who all met in one of the most deprived neighbourhoods in England. Uh, the groups were all single sex, so two for women and one for men. And if anyone has any questions about how I assimilated into an all, uh, two all-female weight loss groups, then ask those questions at the end. It is entirely ethical, but it also interesting. Um, and I, I've done a lot of Zumba, is what I'd say. Um, and they met at a leisure centre once a week for an hour and a half. Every week, each group member would get weighed and have their weight recorded, and they would spend an hour then being physically active. So people who live in less affluent areas are disproportionately disadvantaged by the effects of inequality and obesity. So I was particularly interested in finding out how they negotiated this. Um, and I learned a lot from my time with these groups. It was clear that group members were all forced to negotiate obesity stigma in everyday lives, um, and that being stigmatized actually made it more difficult for them to lose weight. This is what pretty much all of the evidence of obesity stigma shows. Not only does stigma not promote weight loss, but it actually promotes weight gain, for instance, through comfort eating and exercise avoidance. It's always seemed particularly cruel and counterproductive to me that in our culture, um, bigger bodies are stigmatized, but in public health, we often promote swimming as one of the best ways to lose weight because it is non-weight bearing. Um, and in fact, it's this uh, this page from the comic, which you can see on the slide, that has been the one that most people have identified with and wanted to come and talk to me about when uh, I'm out and about publicly. So many people, and this is important to stress, of all shapes and sizes, have come up to me and said, that's me, that is. I've felt that. Uh, this is one of the many reasons why people find it hard to follow the simple logic of move more, live longer. My research shows that it's absolutely imperative that those seeking to prevent obesity and treat people living with it need to take the influence and effects of weight-based stigma seriously. However, the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that the opposite tends to be true. Not only are the effects of weight stigma generally not recognised and taken into account when treating patients, many healthcare providers hold strong negative attitudes and stereotypes about people with obesity. Uh, this is considerable, uh, there is considerable evidence that such attitudes influence person perceptions, judgment, interpersonal behaviour and decision making. One of the ironies of the Cancer Research UK campaign is that weight related stigma has been shown to delay diagnosis of diseases like cancer through two things mainly. People who are of higher weights avoiding going to interact with healthcare because they know that every time they go, they go, they're just going to be told to lose weight even if they go in for like an ear infection or something. And th this, this sense that people, uh, that healthcare professionals blindly prescribe weight loss as a sort of a, a capsule for, okay, your knee hurts if you lose weight, your knee will stop hurting, that sort of thing. Uh, the case of Ellen Moore Bennett is an illustrative one. She died from cancer days after finally being diagnosed, after years of seeking help. So she was someone who actually did engage with healthcare, but was constantly told to just lose weight, you, like you'll get better. And essentially, she had cancer and it was not diagnosed. And she used her own obituary to highlight the fatal consequence of this uh, bias that health professionals generally have. So the part of my research that I want to focus on with you now is not what obesity stigma made people do or not do, but rather how it got under the skin, how it made them feel. So this is what I mean by the weight of expectation. 
So because obesity is framed as a personal failing that places an unnecessary financial burden on, men, uh, on the National Health Service, uh, the behaviours associated with the weight gain are moralised. People don't just talk about eating healthy or unhealthy food, people talking about being good or bad. Um, what I found working with weight loss groups was that stigma attached to these bad behaviours gets it under the skin and is felt in the flesh. So let me explain what I mean by that. So typically at the weight loss groups, so people would come in um, and they would say, I know I've put on weight this week. I can feel it. My clothes feel tighter. I feel big. Often they would talk about, I feel gross. I just feel gross. I feel bigger. Like I can feel it on my clothes. Um, and then they would list a load of sort of bad behaviours. Oh, this week I had a birth, uh, I went to a birthday party and I ate three pieces of cake. Or this, I was supposed to go running on Tuesday, but it was raining, so I didn't go. So they would count for all of these things. Then, very often, they would get on the scales and find out that they had either lost weight or their weight had remained constant. It was the same as what it was last week. And there would be this sort of shock and relief that they would experience, and a genuine shock and relief. And they would often say things like, but I could feel it, like I could feel my belly was bigger, it looked bigger, I just can't understand this. And this happened pretty much every single week to lots of different people in the group. It was not one particular person who was paranoid about something, this was a regular finding every single week in the, across the three different groups. And this is what I call the weight of expectation. If group members engaged in these so-called bad behaviours, they would come to internalise the stigma associated with them, to feel the sense of guilt that manifests itself as a feeling in their body. Even though they had not put on weight, they felt the gravity of their actions. They expected their bad behaviour to lead to weight gain, and this expectation made them feel heavier even if they hadn't put weight on. Hence why I describe it as the weight of expectation. Now, this may seem far-fetched to you because we tend to think of mind and body as being separate. Often we talk about mental health and physical health. Um, however, um, I know that most of you already believe in this theory. Think about sort of the classic example of someone working in a high-powered job being at a higher um, risk of having a heart attack because we understand, say, that stress will have a physiological reaction. So stress, which is an entirely socially constructed thing, you know, a job that someone finds stressful, someone else might not find stressful, that can be internalised and have a phys physiological reaction. And we don't even need to go uh, that far. Think about something like embarrassment. Embarrassment is an entirely socially constructed emotion. What embarrasses me wouldn't necessarily embarrass you and, and the other way around, right? But what happens when you get embarrassed? Your skin goes hot, you, you turn red, you start sweating, right? The, these are physiological reactions to something that is, in essence, made up, a social construction, right? But that has an impact. We feel that we internalise it. And that's the, that's the theory, essentially, that, that, that we're working with. So just like these examples, the weight of expectation is a type of what we'd call psychosomatic stress, and that's no more complicated than sort of connecting the mind and the body and saying it's a, a, a stress that's felt in mind and body. It's a reaction to obesity stigma that uh, um, and what we might term a biopsychosocial phenomenon. This sounds complicated, but really it's something that most of us know to be true, even if only through personal experience. So a biopsychosocial phenomenon is something that is the result of many different but interconnected factors. It has biological, psychological and social elements which culminate in an effect. Thinking about health in these terms helps us to get away from simplistic ideas of personal choice and responsibility and to better appreciate that the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is perhaps, predictably, not evidence-based. Um, recent studies actually suggest the opposite. So research published at the end of last year showed that people who experience obesity stigma have higher levels of a hormone called cortisol. Um, as you're probably aware, cortisol is known as a stress hormone. At times of stress, our body releases cortisol as sort of an evolutionary hangover. Um, what was found in this large population study was that people who had experienced obesity stigma had higher levels of cortisol compared to those who had not. This is an example of how obesity stigma gets under the skin and, it's, and it makes me suspect that cortisol is likely to be involved 
in the feeling that I describe as the weight of expectation, but because I'm a job in academic, I'll say what every academic says, which is we need more research to demonstrate this, right? So, yeah, I'll have another contract, please. Um, what we do know for sure, though, is that cortisol encourages fat storage, which, of course, indicates that obesity stigma is counterproductive. Uh, this is what Janet uh, Tomiyama refers to as cyclic obesity weight-based stigma, or cobwebs model. Her model demonstrates a biopsychosocial process which creates a vicious cycle whereby people are caught in cobwebs. That is, the moralisation of weight leads to stigma, which disproportionately affects those with, uh, with bigger bodies, who then experience psychosomatic stress, which consequently leads to a biological reaction that promotes fat storage. This process is incredibly unhelpful for health promotion. What was clear in the, in the weight loss groups that I observed was that the weight of expectation made people's bodies less knowable to them and was emotionally draining. This didn't promote uh, health. Instead, being stigmatised gave group members one more thing to worry about and deal with and made weight management far more unpredictable and challenging. Something else that was interesting in the weight loss groups was how group members would use physical activity as a way to combat stigma and uncertainty and the uncertainty that this stigma created. So physical activity is moralised as, as one of these good behaviours um, and just... But, just being active wasn't enough to make people uh, in this group feel good. Now, this goes against a lot of the evidence that we have for particularly younger populations. Who it demonstrates if you're just physically active, generally younger populations feel good about themselves as a consequence, irrespective of, of what weight they are. But this group didn't find that generally, that they, they needed more, they needed something else. They couldn't just be physically active. Um, and... This, this sort of manifested in, in, in the group by people. Every single week you would hear people say, we need to go and get a sweat on. I want to get a sweat on. Are we going to get a sweat on? And they, they would talk about uh, how good it was when it hurts the next day. You know, that what we would call DOM, delayed onset muscle uh, fatigue or soreness, and that feeling in your, in your muscles. Um, and that's because they would talk about, because then you know you've done something. And by that, they would often mean, you know you've done something good. They needed this physical evidence. So my interpretation of this was it was one way to deal with the unpredictability of weight management and to help them negotiate stigmatize, their stigmatised physical form. And there's two things that are significant here. Most of the people in the group weren't necessarily losing weight. They were essentially maintaining weight. So they didn't have the evidence of I'm being good and therefore I'm losing this weight. So they needed evidence to demonstrate to themselves that they're sort of a morally good person, even though they don't have the signs for it. I think a really uh, useful way of illustrating this is that these people, so most of the people in these groups didn't have a history of being physically active. They were big people. Look, you had people who were sort of 20 stone and upwards, right? They would go to these groups, and at the time, the fad for weight loss was HIIT training, like high-intensity training, right? And so even though the evidence on that is very sketchy, like exercise... Um, industry is full of fads. That's kind of how it, how it works. And so you had these people who had no real history of being physically active who were then being put in a situation where they had to do incredibly intense physical activity, right? And the thing is, being part of that group and being engaged in that activity with them, you saw these people willingly do this, right? Something that they found incredibly difficult. And then what could happen is they could leave that room where they've been incredibly physically active and done something incredibly challenging that's sort of foreign to them in some sense. Then they go to the uh, changing rooms, they can have a shower, and then they, out on the way walking to their car, someone could shout, fat, lazy bitch. Because this idea of that their body sort of is the revealing thing. We read those bodies in our culture as being lazy. We read those bodies as being a failure of, of lifestyle, a failure to take responsibility. And this goes counter to the behaviours that these people were engaging with. So it's a difficult identity to operate in, to be a physically active, larger body. The sweat and aching muscles provided evidence for themselves and others of the effort that people who are categorised as overweight or obese are assumed to have shirked. So physical activity often fell into the shadow of weight loss. And it makes me wonder how much more positive and enjoyable and, I suppose, uh, more consistently reliable in terms of taking it on in, in the long term might the experience of physical activity be if it wasn't primarily engaged with as a way to lose weight and negotiate weight stigma. 
So I appreciate that this probably all seems relevant to your practice, but at the same time, it's not obvious how you would apply it in your practice. Um, and because I don't want to be sort of the sociologist who provides you with abstract theory that isn't actually particularly useful, I wanted to give a few practical examples of how a biopsychosocial understanding uh, may inform <coughs> evidence-based approach to treating patients of higher weights. So firstly, seeing the bigger picture and appreciating the emotion attached to body weight and size can help to avoid what I call the fallacy of the consultation. So I have a great deal of respect and sympathy for health professionals, in part because as a sociologist, I appreciate that you're often having to deal with the consequences of social issues, but on a one-to-one -one level. The patient consultation encourages health professionals to think in individual terms. This person has this problem, what, I, what can I do to instruct them to do to solve or manage this problem? Often this leads to patients being told to change their lifestyles while their social circumstances which tend to be the barrier to behaviour modification, remain the same. Therefore, this sets the majority of people up for failure. And my point being is just don't fall for this trap. Recognise both, uh, both your and their limitations. Rarely will you be able to change the patient's, a patient's social circumstances, but by bringing them into the conversation, health professionals can demonstrate that they appreciate their relevance and that behaviour change isn't simply about individuals making different choices. Mm -hmm. Demonstrating this empathy and understanding will help those in public health to avoid stigmatising the public and patients or making them feel like they are personal failures. Um, the approach, this approach will limit harm and promote positive relationships, which are, of course, essential to offering good care. Second, then, um, appreciate that patients of higher weights are highly likely to encounter stigma in their everyday lives and that this is likely to have a detrimental impact on their health. Therefore, there is a need to offer patients support for dealing with this as well as ensuring as health professionals you do not contribute to it. The comic we created is already helping health professionals to have conversations with their patients and clients. Um, and I'm happy to give anyone who can put them to good use uh, more copies of them. They are an easy way to start conversations about sensitive, a sensitive subjects and often I feel that health professionals are not given adequate training, support or resources to deal with what is a highly emotive issue. I know one thing that patients often complain about and health professionals are often unsure about is terminology. Words like obesity and fat can and do cause offence. However, what is important to realise is that offence is experienced at a personal level and language is fluid. That is, not everyone finds the same things offensive, and even if they did, the meaning and the use of words changes over time, which means that whether or not someone finds something offensive will, um, will also change over time. For instance, many people consider being called fat insulting, but there is also a whole social movement of fat activists who wish to reclaim and use the power of the word. So my advice to those working in public health is not to try and learn definitive rules about what is and what is not offensive, but rather to have conversations with patients about their preferred use of terms and even why they prefer those terms. This will help to avoid unnecessarily contributing to a sense of stigmatisation and to establish positive and caring dialogues. I appreciate that I've now gone over time, so I'll skip uh, mugging off uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, and go right to this, this, this last point, which is that don't just fall into the trap of thinking that evidence is kind of the, the end point, is that that's the thing, that because you've got the answer, because the evidence says this, that that's what needs to happen and that's what you need to do. Evidence needs to be worked with. Like, you have to do things with it, it otherwise it gets ignored. And I think actually the point with Jacob Rees-Mogg is really, really useful to illustrate this. So talking about the Grenfell fire, he says, I think, we're talking to someone, he says, I think either of us, if we were in a fire, whether the fire brigade said we should leave the burning building, it's, it, so, so we would leave, irrespective of whether what we are told. It just seems like a common sense thing to do. And the important thing with this is, of course, there was a whole hoopla about this, and rightly so, but that strategy was evidence-based. It is the safest thing to do if the building isn't wrapped in something that's highly flammable. The, the problem was is that the evidence that we had that we knew that we shouldn't wrap that building in that highly flammable thing, that evidence was ignored. But what this demonstrates is that the politicians, particularly and people generally in points of privilege, 
feel that they know better than the evidence. And often the common sense thing, which we know as people who use evidence, is often the thing that the evidence demonstrates is the wrong thing to do, what is common sense. But people will do that as a consequence. And I think you see this all the time. So in terms of what you can do with the evidence, really, really simple things, like this picture that you see on your left-hand side, this is a picture that I took at my own local GP surgery. So despite all the things that we know about uh, obesity stigma, despite all the things that we know how people are conscious about their weight, everyone has to use this to sign up, and it's in the waiting room. right? So where is the application of evidence there? What evidence are we listening to there? Sure, we're listening to the idea, the, the evidence that suggests that we, we need to know what people's BMI is. But where is the evidence demonstrating that it shouldn't be, or it's inappropriate to put that in a, a, um, a waiting room in front of everyone else. And I think, again, you can see these things. Think about what, how you're using evidence and, and where you are and where you work within that. So, for instance, sure, people need to eat fruit and vegetables, but is the solution to that public health? Basically, you see these things now where people have fruit and vegetables outside of hospitals. Now, I'm not necessarily massively against that, but do appreciate that the limitation of that, particularly an urgent care centre, which someone might visit once on a particularly bad day, right? you're not going to change their behaviour, what they're eating, even though those strawberries look great. right? These are the limits of working within just the healthcare system. You need to, if you are actually interested in promoting health, work within the healthcare uh, sector, but also outside of it. Work with the partners that you, that you can work with and to, and to uh, recognise that. So, for instance, like when the junior doctors went on strike, this idea that the evidence would demonstrate that the worst thing to do is to have tired doctors working long hours. And therefore, the evidence would suggest that we need shorter hours, we need, people, we need better staffing. These are the sorts of things you can do. So, what I, what I would say is that uh, we, we should, I, I think health professionals in particular, pay for the consequences of not listening to evidence about the social determinants of health. Uh, more so than a lot of people in society. And I think that you should demand action on this and to, and to work collab collaboratively to, to go against it. And so sort of the final thing I would say is that think upstream even when you're acting downstream. So whatever you're thinking about doing, have an appreciation that the social factors outside of the clinic or the, or, or, or the hospital are having a huge bearing on, the, on, the, on what's impacting that individual who you're seeing. So things that uh, really engage with empathy and really engage with equitable health are more likely to promote health than if you just think about things in individualistic ways, which the evidence might suggest is the best way to go about it. So thank you uh, for listening.